Welcome to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. My name is Fergal Byrne. Over the coming months, I'll be interviewing senior business leaders actively working on supply chain decarbonization, reducing Scope 3 emissions in a variety of different industries. We discuss companies' decarbonization journeys, the challenges, their experience and strategies, explore what is working, and identify key lessons and insights. I'm very pleased today to welcome Nancy Gillis to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. Nancy is Program Head Climate Action at the World Economic Forum and also leads the First Movers Coalition, a global initiative harnessing the purchasing power of companies to decarbonize eight hard-to-abate industrial sectors. Thank you very much, Nancy, for joining me today on the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about the work that you're doing at the World Economic Forum at the moment and the work you've been doing, indeed, over many decades related to supply chains, supply chain decarbonization, scope three emissions. But before we dive into the discussion, maybe can you tell us a little bit about your role, the work that you do at the World Economic Forum, and maybe a little bit about your background as well, Nancy? Great. Yes. Thank you so much for that question. As was mentioned, I'm Nancy Gillis, and I am at the World Economic Forum, based here in Geneva, Switzerland. My emphasis here at the World Economic Forum is how do you leverage demand aggregation as a way to actually address some of the social challenges that we're seeing? The one that I'm focused on right now is climate change. So what does that mean, demand aggregation? Well, it means that we're trying to take the purchasing power of organizations, in particular private sector, and see how that can actually lead towards decarbonizing or reducing the greenhouse gases of what we call the economically essential sectors. These are sectors that any organization relies on. And my role is, I'm a program head for this. The program is called the First Movers Coalition. And I get the opportunity to actually drive the strategy and the implementation plans on how you leverage demand aggregation or purchasing power to address that climate change impact. Super exciting. Yes, indeed. Now, you refer to it as economically essential sectors. I think one time this people would talk about many of these sectors in terms of hard to abate, harder to abate. That's not the language you use anymore. No. In part, I don't use it because... Our whole program, the First Movers Coalition, is an example that these are sectors that can be abated. So that means that the greenhouse gases associated with the activity, the production activity or the transportation activity can be abated. And I call them the economically essential because it's hard to find an organization that doesn't rely on these sectors. And so what are these sectors? They can kind of simplistically fall into two camps, one called long-range transportation. So it's aviation and trucking and shipping. And the other is called materials. This is for us, aluminum, steel, cement and concrete, and chemicals. Whereas chemicals, we're bounding into plastics. So it's really hard to find an organization that isn't either moving product or people, i.e. the long-range transportation, or that doesn't, as part of its product or service, include the aluminum, the steel, the cement and concrete, or the plastics. So definitely economically essential. 
Now, this has been a difficult time for supply chain executives in many industries, significant challenges, many of which are ongoing. How do you think that impacts companies' ability to focus on sustainability issues like Scope 3? Well, I think actually it's really brought to the forefront why they need to focus on Scope 3 when you're talking about reducing the greenhouse gases or and therefore addressing climate change impacts, right, this decarbonization, or definitely having that supply chain become more resilient to the impact of climate change, because we are living in climate change. And basically what we've seen with the horrible pandemic that we've lived through and the consequences of the supply chain disruptions is really what that future of climate change is going to look like for all of those supply chains. And so part of what I see now is when you actually had conversations, and as you noted, I've been in the area of resilient, responsible, and sustainable supply chains, basically the 20 odd years of my career. But what I used to see early on is it was a a future problem, right? Oh yeah, talk about scope three and that resiliency and GHGs and all that. Mm, We'll worry about that later. Well, they're worrying about it now because they've experienced what that impact will be. And what I see now is companies are really looking towards scope three or working with their suppliers within their supply chain throughout all the tiers to actually make themselves more resilient to what they've been experiencing, more competitive because others are doing it, actually more risk reduced particularly when you start thinking about finance institutions, investors, and actually understanding and responding to regulations that are here now or coming. So I see, whereas a decade ago, it was a, oh, future planning, I have to think about other things now to scope three is the here and now. It's no longer future planning. Very interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the First Movers Coalition, one of your current key projects? What is the underlying thinking here? Why is Scope 3 a particular challenge for these companies? It's a real good question. So what is the First Movers Coalition? Because I kind of referenced that into my introduction. So the First Movers Coalition is what we're trying to do is we worked with another organization that the World Economic Forum was really proud and honored to incubate called the Mission Possible Partnership. We've actually just graduated that out of the World Economic Forum. And that program looked at creating roadmaps for these economically essential sectors that I referenced, right? These long-range transportation and these material sectors. It basically created a roadmap that said, if you need to bring down the GHGs, right, in those sectors, that here's certain ways to do it. And part of those plans identified technologies. They said, you know what, if we use these technologies, you would, and using these technologies in the production of materials and services, if we use these technologies or these new energy sources, that decarbonization would happen. And First Movers Coalition looked at those technologies, and many of those technologies were envisioned, but they were envisioned of coming to commercial scale in market by 2040, by 2050. And we looked at it and said, you know what? The situation that we're in, these are technologies that aren't bleeding edge. So they're not theoretical. They're there, but there's only a small number of them available. 
And so if we could create a demand right now for them, then we could move them forward into adoption before that 2040 or 2050 timeline that's currently envisioned into it by 2030. And if we did that, we'd bring that decarbonization, we'd lower those greenhouse gases much faster, and we'd be doing so in those sectors that, this is why I call them economically essential, that most any organization is using, which means we'd be bringing down the greenhouse gases that right now, globally, are 30% of those gases much faster. So what's the first Movers Coalition doing? What we're trying to do is we're trying to take companies who buy on those sectors, and we've given them a demand commitment. We say, continue to buy steel, continue to buy aluminum. You do so anyway, you need to. But buy a version of that steel, buy a version of that aluminum, buy a version of that trucking uh, service, buy a version of that sustainable aviation fuel or transportation aviation services that meets our definition. And that definition includes the technologies that we're trying to pull forward. And so what that's causing is those companies are having to pivot to their scope three, to their supply chain, work with those suppliers and say, I want to continue buying from you. We have a long relationship, but I want you to change. I want you to adopt these technologies, these clean, innovative technologies. Now I'll work with you. In fact, I'm committing to you by an advanced purchase agreement or an offtake agreement. That's the level of commitment I'm willing to go. So that you make this investment, you transition to these new clean, innovative technologies, and we start decarbonizing these sectors now, faster than what we currently assume. So that's what the First Movers is about. So it seems inherent to what you're doing, this idea of actual investment. So you're not calling on suppliers to do things and asking them and petitioning them and so forth. The companies are putting money on the table. How much difference does that actually make, do you think, Nancy? In essence, that is the question because that's the difference. So when a supplier actually sees a contract for something, that's what they need to take to the bank to get money of the magnitude necessary to make this change within their facilities, right? You can't take a MOU to a bank. You can't take a, but they signed this nice commitment and look, it's on their website to a bank. You don't unlock the financial resources absent an actual contract. So that's why the First Movers Coalition is so focused on it, because commitments are great, MOUs are great, all of those other softer signals of, yes, we want to do this, are great, but it doesn't unlock the necessary financial support to make the investments happen. Can you give us some examples of the kind of technologies you're talking about, some of the technologies that maybe excite you that you're seeing progress with? Well, I mean, what we're focusing on is carbon capture utilization and storage or CCUS. Again, some of the listeners might be aware of that, but like, ah, oh, what? That's kind of out there. Mm, yeah, but that's what we're trying to pull forward. For those of you in the aluminum or, or steel sector, something like inert anoids which is, is ways to actually do a melting or furnace technology, electrolysis. So there's these new technologies that, again, some people may be like, hmm, I've, I've heard about those, but I don't know. They're not really on the market. Or even sustainable aviation fuels. I'm sure many have heard about that. We're focused on what's called SAF 85. So sustainable aviation fuel that has really 
85% reduced GHGs, whereas most sustainable aviation fuels that are currently on the market are at 60 to 70%. So again, stuff you've probably heard about, technologies or energy sources you've probably heard about, but they're just not commercial. And those are the examples. And what we're trying to do is we have these major companies that have signed these demand commitments, be it in steel or aluminum, working with their existing suppliers, right? Tier ones, tier twos, tier threes, and basically saying, use these technologies in your production processes. Transition to these new clean, innovative technologies. The coalition includes a growing number of companies from a a range of different sectors, but includes competitors as well. How do you deal with that and manage relationships? Yeah, that's a good point. It does include competitors, right? And this is actually a good thing because the day of, if you're trying to move the entire steel sector to reducing at a sectorial level, it's greenhouse gases, a single company standing up and saying to their supplier, hey, I want you to use these new technologies so that you bring down the greenhouse gases. Hey, that would still be admirable, but is it going to lead to transformative decarbonization by that sector? No. So the day of just a single company standing up, how admirable that is and having the impact that we need is actually not with us any longer. We now need many players in the sector to stand up. And so what you might see as competitors are really those companies who are willing to stand up and say, we need to do it together in one way because it is showing enough of a demand signal to have these suppliers really invest. And there's not small investments in these new technologies at scale. But it's also that you're really showing that not only the leaders who are competitors in that space, but all of those followers, all of the medium and smaller size companies who are also in that space, that there's a way forward. They're forging the path for those other companies to work with those same suppliers who are now changing their processes so that truly you get the sector to decarbonize. So actually, the more that we get competitive companies together in a sector, the happier we are. And the more we're actually seeing them do that, they themselves see the need to decarbonize the sector. For many of these companies, this kind of collaboration isn't in their genes, shall we say. How do they internally build a culture of collaboration? Well, I think, you know, you referenced that we're in an era in which we've just gone through these massive supply chain breakages, right? And it wasn't just a short term, several months. It's been years. And we're trying to recover. And yet we still continue to see some of those disruptions now from a political basis as certain things have occurred. Uh, Of course, the, the Ukraine invasion and just an energy crisis when nobody anticipated that. And then, you know, you continue to see the pop ups of these weather events that are massively destructive as well. Just look at what's happened in Pakistan. So, I think what you're seeing is companies saying, we now live in a new normal. And what used to be these kind of competitive, why would we work together? Everybody sees that everybody is in this new normal. And therefore, that competitive pressure isn't quite the same that it was before. So what do you say to companies that are cautious about collaboration or just not very experienced in this kind of collaboration? A company may understand the need to decarbonize and so forth. But may have a strong culture that isn't amenable to this kind of collaboration. 
Yeah, well, there are junctures in history where you see major changes occur, and certain companies who were at the top of that competitive structure no longer exist, right? And I think this is a point. And of course, the advents of the the internet and just that whole shift in paradigm was so rapid, right? (laughs) Talk about records to CDs to now streaming. Who would have thought that we would have lived through that in a mere matter of decades? Similar here. So I think the companies who have an aversion to collaborating, who have an aversion to actually addressing their scope three, sure, continue. And then recognize that the competitive advance that you may have, right, that's going to dissipate. Because if you're not right now engaging with your supplier base, if you're not securing those suppliers who are instilling the technologies, the processes to bring down the GHGs, you're opening yourself up for A, not being able to respond to current and shortly forthcoming regulatory pressures. You're setting yourself up for not being able to actually have those relationships with those suppliers because the ones companies who have that are going to be at the forefront. Your customers care more about it. And to be honest, your own effective and efficient operations are dependent on it. So I think the companies who aren't doing that, of course, it's always their choice, but the companies who are are the ones who are much more attractive to financing, much more ability to respond to the regulatory landscape, much more able to actually put products and services that their customers increasingly want and realistically are less risky because they have the supplier base. That's the supplier base of the future. So eh, it's up to them. Very interesting. So you see significant competitive advantages for companies who focus and deliver on their scope three decarbonization goals. Oh, yeah. And they see it as well. You know, one of the benefits of being at the World Economic Forum is we do have an annual meeting that we host in in Davos, Switzerland. And timing of our conversation is that it's just occurred. I think one of the major outcomes that we all agree is we are honored to have so many CEOs from organizations around the globe and all these different sectors participate. And increasingly, of course, we see that they just say this is the new world and that they're actually the focus is on how do I respond to it. So yeah, is it competitive advantage? Absolutely. Has it become though a competitive necessity just to actually make it through into the world we find ourselves? That as well. So yes. And Davos this year, 2023, has just come finished. Did you see and have you seen signs of commitment discussions about scope three. Just wondering what signs you saw at the World Economic Forum this year that this is something that's been taken very seriously by big companies right now. Oh yeah, this is what actually made me so excited coming out of a rather intensive set of days, which is what Davos is, because I was personally in the room, and of course the majority of our conversations are Chatham House rules so that it allows the freedom of CEOs to be very open with other CEOs in the room. To have an actual leader of a major uh, Fortune 100 company sit across the table and look at a counterpart and say, one, you know what, I need to push this down into my supply chain. And 
if I were to do this and then looking at a company that is a competitor and you were to do this, that's a tremendous amount of suppliers. And so we should work together to actually push this down because it benefits both of us. And to see that level of conversation happening and knowing that after this meeting that they have proceeded to instilling with their supplier relationship and procurement teams, the direction that this is what we now need to engage with our suppliers on is absolutely heartening. And that's just one example. I mean, these types of frank conversations, even a acknowledgement by a CEO to your right, they're normally like decade ago, scope three, what? Now it's not even scope three. It is my supply base. I need to engage my supply base and change their behaviors. I thought it was super heartening. And what about investors? Do you get an investor's perspective? Do they care? Are you seeing signs that they understand supply chains better and that they care about this? Oh, absolutely. I think investors do call it scope three. And increasingly, they want to know, because let's be honest, if you look at an organization, where are most of the greenhouse gases and actually where's most of the risk? It's not in your scope one and your scope two. It's in your scope three. It's in your supply base. And they know this. So even just an investor from a risk perspective, they want to know, do you know your supply base enough to be able to get a scope three GHG inventory, right? Are you working with your suppliers to make sure that you're enabling them to bring that down? Are you telling them that you care about that? Because in bringing down their GHG impact, um, what you're doing is you're making those suppliers much more energy efficient, right? You're making them more resilient. You're creating the supply base that this future of climate change that we're living in requires. So yeah, there was a lot of investor conversation. And I think we see that externally already as well. Fascinating. Now, what kind of commitments have members of the First Movers Coalition made so far? And can you talk about some of the company's commitments and where you are on the First Movers Coalition journey, Nancy? No, that's a great question. So, you know, the First Movers Coalition, we actually launched at COP26. So that was two COPs ago in Glasgow. And it was a partnership between the World Economic Forum and the initial government who really stimulated this, which was the U.S. government, to their credit, the U.S. government, and particularly the State Department, the Office of the Special Envoy, Secretary John Kerry. And we launched this, and it was the recognition that if we just prompted this demand signal to pull forward these new clean, innovative technologies, we could decarbonize the sectors that are currently responsible for 30% of global GHG emissions and growing, not reducing, and growing. And I mentioned the sectors that are under the auspices of the First Movers Coalition. At COP26 in Glasgow, we launched four of what turned out to be a total of eight sectors. We've increasingly, since that time and now, additionally launched sectors. And by this, it means when we launch, it means we create a demand commitment. Again, it's a company, you know, it's a commitment that says, oh, I'm going to buy steel. But when I now buy my steel, 10% of the total volume of that steel is going to be steel that meets these characteristics, right? Greenhouse gas characteristics. And again, the only way that that could be achieved is if the supplier of that steel is using the technology and energy sources that we, the First Movers Coalition, have identified. And we've been relying on the Mission Possible Partnership for that technology and energy mix. And these are technologies, as I mentioned before, that they're not bleeding edge. They're not like, pie in the sky, theoretical. 
but they also aren't commercialized. And by us making this demand, it's pulling those technologies across what people like to call the valley of death, right? That area where, wow, is it going to make it in the market or not? It pulls them over that valley of death and brings them to commercialization faster than you would have anticipated. And so where we're at right now is we've launched all of the sectors except our chemical sector, our plastics. And you can well imagine many companies use plastics, both in packaging, but also in their parts components. So that's going to be a big one. And we're launching that one this year in June, June, July timeframe. And then as we now still focus on launching that last sector, we've launched those other sectors. And really the work has been in okay, you've made a commitment. How do you actually then make it, you know, meet the commitment? So we're focusing on evidencing supply. So who are the suppliers willing to actually transition how their more carbon intensive processes, how to shift those carbon intensive processes to more decarbonized through the use of the technologies we identify. So it's actually bringing them to the forefront. And it's actually then working with the member companies who've been honest enough to say, you know what, my procurement people, how do we do this? Have others figured this out? To actually have a procurement summit this year to say, why don't we bring some of those companies in? Because at the end of the day, you can commitment, we're washing commitments. It's really, how do I make these contracts happen? How do I actually engage with these suppliers? What's the true uh, methods to do so successfully? So we want to bring some of those examples that we're very aware of to the summit and share it publicly with all the other companies as well. It's still early days, I know, Ruth, but but how would you dimensionalize the impact of these commitments, which on paper look substantial? Are there any outcomes you can point to uptake or development of new technologies? Right now, we still have smaller examples of these offtakes. I can say that from a relaunched with one government, enough governments see this move of transforming an existing supply base as a necessity that we've now transitioned to 12 government partners, right? From one to 12. We launched with 30 companies. We're at 70 companies. And the total, as we look at, because they've shared with us what they expect to spend in their commitments by what time frame? And our program, the First Movers Coalition, has 2030 as its deadline, right? So you have to meet your commitment by 2030 that we're up to $12 billion in demand, aggregated demand, just across the companies that we have right now. Right, right. Can you talk about the role and importance of procurement here of a neglected Ruth? Any examples of best practice or general observations? I so appreciate that because I really think that just the power of purchasing or the power of the purse has been an underutilized strategy as we look to combating climate change or even just increasing the sustainability of organizations globally and the people who make up that function. I think they're unsung heroes, to tell you the truth. So my background has been that I've had the honor of working in the area of procurement or purchasing supplier relationship basically all of my career. And I'm frequently quoted because I've said it for many years. It's an non-sexy area. People don't highlight it. But when you start talking about impacting your scope three, you're talking about your supply chain, you're talking about your supplier relationships, and those relationships are codified by contracts, whether you like it or not. 
the First Movers Coalition is a private sector focused demand aggregation program. But we do also align with governments because some of the sectors that we cover are still very much areas where governments buy. And when governments buy, that's a lot of money. Cement and concrete, right? More than 50% of cement and concrete globally is bought by governments. So here, what if you're able to leverage your procurement function, your purchasing function, what you're able to do is you're really giving that supplier base the one necessary piece that a commitment can't. You're willing to back up their required change, you know, investment to change behavior by your own money. You're basically willing to say, if you build it, don't hope I will come, but if you build it, I'm here and I'm willing to buy it. There's nothing quite as powerful as that signal, right? And so I think the more that you have private and public sector players leveraging their purchasing power to say, if I find, if I'm on a decarbonization or net zero journey, I know that most of my impact is in my supply chain, my scope three, and I'm willing to back that up by saying that I'm only going to work with suppliers who are making this important to themselves. And the way that I'm going to guarantee that is I'm putting certain requirements on their behavior or the behavior of the products and services that provide to me into my contracts with them. And I'm going to actually do so, but I'll also help them. I'll support them. I'll engage with them because really that's the only way that's going to be done. What are some of the challenges getting procurement on board here? Maybe some insights into best practice, Nancy. No, that's a great question. I mean, people may not because people I don't think have really thought about procurement or purchasing functions, but just think about your own individual behavior. It tends to be pretty risk averse and it tends to be at times pretty confusing as well, right? So in the same way that when you go into a store, you tend to like to buy the things that you've confirmed meet your needs, you know, that are a price point that you're willing to pay, you like the flavor, you think the quality, you've tested, you've bought it before, so the quality is there. And you also tend to go for the things that when you go to the store, it's there, right? It's not like you like it that one week it's there, next two weeks it isn't. Those are the same things that companies look at. So you build long-term relationships so that you can guarantee price and quality and quantity at the time that you need it for the cycles of your business. What we're asking to do here is to take all of that and instill a whole new level of risk. Because here now you're having to go to those suppliers and if they change to these new technologies, nah, the quality may be different. Not to say it's less, but it may be different because, of course, now the product itself is going to be a bit different because it's been produced using different technologies. And we actually hope that it's going to be different. We hope that it's actually more green, right? Lower GHG emitting. And then you also, since you're going through this transition, it's not sure, can you get as much? And that's actually one of the challenges for the First Movers Coalition the supply is increasing, but it's very small, still comparatively to the demand. And in fact, that's why I think we have companies joining the first movers because those companies want to get that supply as it becomes available because they see that that's really where that competitive advantage is because that supply isn't guaranteed to just continue to at the same scale and amount increase. There'll be fits and starts. And so you want to be at the front of the line. So 
what does this mean for those procurement teams? Well, you know, they're having to take the standards of what they've been operating against, quantity, quality, cost, um, availability, and actually instill a bit more risk into that function. And that's not really what purchasing or procurement people like to do. They really don't like to be risky because you want to deliver what your company needs so your company can put its products and services out in the market and meet that customer demand. So a lot of it is having the procurement or teams first work with their suppliers and say, this is what we're wanting to do. This is why we're wanting to do it. And to listen, because you know what? Suppliers aren't stupid. They've been hearing and watching this, and they themselves are saying for us to be competitive to the customers we've had long-term, we need to consider this. So it's actually listening to the suppliers. It is then explaining to them why you think certain technologies or practices are beneficial. It's then making the investment to say, if you're going to take this time to transition, I'll be here for you. What does that look like? What am I buying when? So that's why the First Movers Coalition focuses on advanced purchase agreements or offtakes. So an agreement that says, as you actually are able to put it in the market, be guaranteed I'll buy it. And learning how to create those type of agreements and work with suppliers so that those agreements are met. So these become detailed things that people listening may be like, oh, wow, that was too much. But that's really, when we talk about decarbonization, credible decarbonization by companies, that's what it takes. Now, as you mentioned, economically essential sectors face very particular challenges. What are the less, some lessons, do you think, for other sectors that are on their scope three journey? I think it's the the same lessons, be it economically essential or not. I think it's the, you need to make a, a public statement that this matters to you. You need to start engaging with your supplier base. You need to have them understand what it means to reduce greenhouse gases. You probably need to have them understand how they can best even quantify what uh, GHG impact they're having. And then what are some of the most effective and efficient ways to reduce them? You need to to listen to what odds are they've been looking at this themselves, what they have as far as suggestions, and you need to build these relationships. And it's not only with your direct supplies, your tier ones, but your additional tiers. And you need to talk with your value chain members. That scope three is not only your supply chain, but you really need to make sure that your customers are valuing this and understanding what you're doing. You need to make sure that those who are enabling, right? So are you having conversations with your financing institutions? Are you having conversations with your shareholders? Because this is a massive shift. And the more that those who actually impact your business are aware that you are trying to undergo this shift and you're doing the best credible forward movement to do so, the more that you're able to actually leverage them and work with them and the more it's likely that you'll be successful. The days, again, of a single company just standing up and saying, I'm going to do this alone without engaging as fully as possible with all of those value chain participants, those days are gone. You need to have a value chain perspective. Very interesting indeed. And finally, what's next for the Press Movers Coalition? Yeah, as I mentioned, and I uh, thank you for allowing me to highlight because it is a fantastic program and, you know, it's first movers. So it's supposed to be out there and kind of showing 
the credible example of companies doing this, meeting demand commitments, working with their suppliers, changing the supplier base so that other companies can follow, right? So hat off to all of the companies who are first movers. And of course, the list of who are those companies is available on our website at the first movers coalition. .org. <laughs> but what are we expecting for 2023? I mentioned the procurement summit because how do you actually do that? There's been a strong push, especially at the last COP27 in Egypt. Hey, what is credible action? Well, that's an example of credible action. So that information will be forthcoming. We're expecting it September. And for those interested, would love to talk to them about their participation. We're doing something called in-country workshops. Well, what is that? But we're actually going to the countries where the supply base of the sectors that we cover are located, and we're explaining to those suppliers, this is what decarbonization, why it's important, why it's important to you. Here's how you can do it to really help transition them. And when we go in those countries, we're going to bring country representatives and also financial representatives. Why? Because as I mentioned, you need to bring the whole enabling environment. So that's policy folks who can maybe modify policies that aren't productive right now as you're trying to transformatively decarbonize. And you need to bring money because this does cost and somebody needs to help offset those costs. So we're doing that and proud to say that we're planning to do it in Brazil, India, South Africa, Japan, Singapore, and other countries to be announced future dates as well. And then one of the last things taking the time is As companies on the supply side are stepping forward and saying, okay, I'll make this investment. I'm willing to do this. I've looked at first movers. We're going to highlight them in a supplier database. And this is to make sure that we are driving as much demand to them because we do know this is not an inconsequential investment that they would undertake. And we want to make sure as we continue to either have the demand through the members of the First Movers Coalition or even companies who want to do this but haven't joined the first movers, because you don't have to, to decarbonize, that they know what suppliers to go to. So I'm super excited about that because if you're creating demand, that's all well and good, but you better start having that demand be met by credible supply. So a lot is happening in 2023 for the First Movers Coalition. Well, that's a great vision, Nancy, and I wish you all the very best with the great work you're doing. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with Ecovadis. No, thank you. And a shout out to Ecovadis and the work that it has been doing in actually helping companies understand their Scope 3 and their supply chain impacts. Great work and definitely appreciated. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Scope 3 Agenda podcast with EcoVadis. We hope you found it interesting and would love if you could share with your colleagues and leave a review. If you would like to find out more about EcoVadis, please visit ecovadis.com.